0: Lord, we thank you for the ability to sing to you. Here in a midweek, your children gather to sing praises to you. What a joy, Lord. Now we turn to your word. Thank you for the joy of having that, Lord. Having that constant stay in our life. Always able to turn to something in this world that we have now. Something that's perfect and flawless. At any moment, we can turn to the word of God. We can quote it. We can certainly hide it in our hearts so that we don't sin against you. What a great joy we have in believing and understanding that we have the inspired Word of God in our hands. Thank you, Lord, for that. Now, Lord, we ask that you bless our time in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 32 of Numbers is our text we are in as we continue our trek through the Pentateuch getting close to finishing the book of Numbers, and then we will come to what I call the great sermons of Moses uh, in Deuteronomy, and we'll work our way through that throughout the winter months, um, learning and growing as Moses gives his last inspired thoughts before he dies. Deuteronomy is an amazing book, amazing sermons, great life lessons throughout it. Uh, We'll learn that as well. But now we're in Numbers, trying to finish this book out. We're in chapter 32, and here we find um, what we'll see as the book unfolds. There are not just two, but there's a two and a half tribes, um, Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, these guys are coming and they're requesting a piece of land on this side of the Jordan, not a piece that's inside of Canaan, but a piece that's outside of the promised land. And it's uh, uh, truly, you you start to appreciate the significance of this chapter the more you study it. we, we'll, we'll take a look at the size of the piece of land here, and, and you'll realize what is going on here as we go through it. It isn't all what first seem, we seem to see. First we see, hey, these people found some good land. Maybe we'll just stay here. We'll be involved in this, or we'll go help you fight. And, but there's so much more to that. Remember, there's a human heart that is always desperately wicked, and, and this nation has proved that. So we'll, we'll look at those things as well. Um, I do want to show you just right off the bat. I think I, 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 I might have said I was going to do this later. Can you get to that map, Shelby, um, and put it up? Um, I just want to give you a little bit. Of, so you get a lay of the land, literally, uh, where, where they're at. Um, uh, so they would have come down from here, wandered around back and forth down here, way down here uh, during the 40 years, made their way back up through here, and they would have come back around somewhere in this area And this is where this is all taking place. They're staging over here and going to go into Jericho. You'll see that's not too far from Jerusalem later on. Um, But this is where they're staged. And this piece of land is what this chapter is about. This massive piece of land is what this is talking about here. There's some very interesting places in here. Um, To start with, you'll notice that the word Bashan here. Remember the bulls of Bashan. Psalms chapter 22, Jesus, a great, what's a, what we call a messianic psalm, speaks about the bulls of Bashan are surrounded us. It tells you it's extremely fertile ground up here um, that would have been a place where they would have raised cattle. Here we get into the hills of, uh, Gal- of uh, Gilead. These are, and my thing just quit, um, uh, where, where many of the men, you'll see at the end of the chapter, fought for those areas to go into there. Uh, Heshbon down down below there, Mount Nebo, where Moses will go and die, as he looks in and probably can see possibly the hills of Jerusalem from there. What would be Jerusalem someday? So, quite a piece of land that this this passage is oh, working again talking about. Um, uh, chapter 34 will give, when we get to there, it'll we'll, we'll briefly look at that when we get there. It'll look at more of the boundary lines. There's really clear boundary lines that are in that map. We'll see that in chapter 34. However, what we see in chapter 32 in this request for this land is quite unsettling, particularly to Moses. This, these tribes, these, these two and a half tribes are requesting land outside of the promised land and not only is that a really a breach to the covenant that god made with moses right this is the land he had him walk through this land all on the west side of the jordan there but moses you're going to see that moses believes at least at first that this is a disturbing indifference to the divine word of God to go into the land and take it. And so there's problems as this starts to unfold here. And you just think about this, just as a nation is just about ready to cross the Jordan, they're they're assembling, the last instructions are given, all of a sudden you have two and a half tribes that say, hey, we're opting out, we want to stay on this side. This does not go over well with Moses. Moses looks at it, and you'll see this as we go through this text, as very similar to what happened in chapter 13 and 14 at the rebellion of Kadesh Barnea, right? When they first came to the land, rejected the ten spies, led them into rebellion, rejected Caleb and Joshua, and thus they went off to the wilderness and died there, the older generation. Now, in time, it seems to be that the tribes of Gad and Reuben and and later in this chapter, the half-tribe of Manasseh um, are declaring that um, they, they don't believe that that's where they're to go. And, and then this heated exchange, this heated almost sermon by Moses comes out of this text, and he, he compares these desires to stay on that side with that earlier generation. And it appears, as you first study this, that the three tribes seem to be very patient. They, 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 they've come to Moses with a request. Moses goes off. You're going to see this sermon of his. He, he is not happy. He's very vocal in this. But they wait for an opportunity. But then you begin to look at this and you go, is there selfish intentions in these two and a half tribes? What were they doing? Why, why did they do this, and does God allow this? Does Moses allow this, and how does this take place? So in the end, these leaders of these three tribes promise to say, look, we're going to stay here, but we're going to send our fighting men. They're going to go with the other tribes across there, and they're not going to return till it's all done. And after listening to that, uh, Moses is, seems to be satisfied. Uh, he gives a proposal back to them that allocates their land if if they conditionally fulfill their side of it. And so we'll look at that as we go through. But a lot of questions and a great verse in here uh, that many, maybe you heard it from your grandmother. I certainly heard it from my mom saying, be sure your sins will find you out. That verse is in this text. And we want to understand how it was used in the context it was laid in. So let's look at four thoughts um, tonight uh, in this text. One, the request of land outside of the promise and the sensitivity to sin. So this request by these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and later the half-tribe of Manasseh, to settle on the east side of the Jordan is repeated many times in the Bible. Uh, it's we'll, we'll see it over and over. So, quite a few times in Deuteronomy, throughout uh, Joshua, Judges, throughout the history of Israel, you see this decision that's made here repeated many times. So... Clearly, we begin to believe that ultimately this was the will of God for them to settle there, and it has incredible significance uh, as time goes on in the nation of Israel. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't as easy as you think. Hey, we just want to stay here. This is some good land. There's so much more to that as these events are recorded and unveiled. Look at the first couple of verses with me. Now, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had extremely large... Exceedingly large numbers of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer in the land of uh, Gilead, they, that it indeed was a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eliezer, the priests, and to the leaders of the congregation of Israel, saying, and they list off this long list of names. And If you study this name, Heshbon, Jazer, and a few of those are still there. Some of the names are changed a little bit. Some of those cities were wiped out. Um, Nebo is in there there was a town there probably reference to that area that mountain and so forth this is the land that they're after now in these first three verses we see the leaders of these tribes presenting a request this is a request to Moses we want to remain on the east side of the Jordan and in a land that will later it, it, often when you're reading your Old Testament they'll talk about the land of Galilee or excuse me Gilead uh, that 's what they'll they 'll keep turning back to and that 's what it, this is that track of land and this and this track of land was acquired over just recently right in in chapters far back as uh, uh twenty twenty three twenty four they run into Sion and Og right, and there they they have a battle there, and so they 've acquired this land recently they just had a battle with the Midianites and the moabites um, they're later going to take on the Amorites that 's what all of that all that is in that map there. Um, uh, I don't know if it's still behind me or not. Um, you'll see, and you can see. I think in those maps, can you get to that, Shelby? You can see where Ammon is here. Um, this, this, this would have been Moab and. Uh, My clicker quits working. Um, Moab and the Midianites would have been settled all the way down along that area. These were all battles they had previous, and they've gained this land already in a sense that they beat these different nations. So these three tribes are intending to make this their permanent dwelling on that east side of the Jordan and not cross with the rest of the tribe. You'll notice that the basis of the request is found in verse 1. It's good land for livestock, they saw it, they looked at this land and they saw it a lush pasture land. They realized that this was a great place for them. They were known, and you 'll see this as time goes on. these tribes were known for the raising of bulls and livestock. This was their deal. This is what they liked, and so they saw this land and it was ideal. And it was suited for their families, and so they were attracted to it. If it would have been the Menezes working their way through there, we would have looked at this land and said, hey, yeah, that looks good, right? We were cattle people, and, and we like that kind of stuff. So uh, we, I, I get that part of it. Now, notice in verse 2 and 3 that we see the leaders of Israel... Um, of the tribes there, as well as Moses and Eliezer, these are the men that approach. So they come, they come up to the men that are the leaders of the nation, and and then they give the names of the places, and they're outlining what they want. Later, again, later in chapter thirty-four, we'll see the exact uh, that map uh, laid out in the scriptures. Now, verses four and five, notice there's a clear description of the land from from the formal request, verse. 4. And the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Good for livestock. We have livestock. We want it. Verse 5. They said, if we have found favor in your sight, so they're appealing, there's an appeal made to the leaders here, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and do not take us across to the Jordan. Now, Again, we've looked at that map, and you can just, you might have a better one in your Bible. That one I found online. I gave it to Troy today to, to put up there. But this was a huge track of land. I mean, when you look at it in comparison to the rest of the nation Israel, it's at least a third the size, if not more, of that entire uh, land that they will get. There's many towns named. If you look towards the end of the chapter, you'll see more towns that you may recognize But some of these areas belong to the Amorites. Now, they ran into them in chapter 21. The Lord struck them down, so they gained that. Israel comes in contact with Sion and Og, whom they had no intention of conquering. You remember that. Hey, we're just going to stay on the king's highway. We're going to stay here. Let us pass through. We won't drink any water. Our cattle won't eat. Nothing will happen. We're just going to go through. And the kings there said no and brought war out to them. So God whooped them, gave them the land of that. So this land is actually now under the control of the Israelites, but the promised land is where they're meant to be. Now, verses 6 through 15, we come to the response of Moses. Everything seems good up to now, right? Hey, this looks good. Here's the kind of people are. We have this anyway. There's some cities that are there that we want to rebuild, make fortified, and put our children in, and all those things. This looks good. Can we have it? And now Moses talks. Verse 6. Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you yourself sit here? He says here because they're actually in that spot. You're going to stay here. Verse 7. Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given to them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them to Kadesh Barnea and to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came out from Egypt from 20 years older and up well, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jethun, and the Kizanite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. Notice the word fully, did not follow him fully, and then fully. There's a big difference between obedience and partial obedience, right? Verse 13, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Great language there, right? In the sight of the Lord, it was evil what they did. Lack of faith, lack of trust of God is evil. Did you see that in the text? It's extremely clear. That's how God looks at lack of faith, lack of trust in him. He sees this as evil. Verse 14, now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness. Now listen to this. And you will destroy all these people. Now that's quite a reaction, isn't it? Hey, I got some cows. There's some grass. We want to stay here. <laughs> Moses Goes off, doesn't he? I mean, this is this is some intensity here, and you can see Moses react angrily to this suggestion. It even says that there in verse six, now Moses Moses uh, was was quite upset with this. You can see the anger that comes out of him. Why should your brothers go without you? Now, he immediately compares it to the sinfulness of Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter thirteen and fourteen, isn't it? When you first read that, you go, well, that's kind of a jump, isn't it, Moses? But when when Moses, and it's coming from this, and this is, we're gonna get into this as we get a little farther on there, if this is a heart issue of lack of trust in God, it's evil. And Moses is all over this. He smelled this out before. And that's why this reaction comes. And it was back in Numbers 13 and 14 when the children of Israel unwilling to possess the land. They were brought to it. God says go and take it. They were unwilling to take what God was giving it to them. So Moses is comparing that. Now notice that Moses immediately seems to condemn the proposal. And Moses' severe rejection of these tribes' requests is completely understood when you think about in comparison to that. If, in fact, that's what's happening, if they're going to act like their forefathers before them, this is going to be evil, and Moses is saying it ain't happening. We're not doing that again. Now, think about Moses. Um, doubtlessly, he himself experienced great pain and anguish. He had led this people from Egypt through Red Seas, through you know, hunger and all the things they went through, all the complaining, the murmuring, but all that got them all the way to the border and they reject God. And he doesn't go in. None of them go in. Now it's another loop back through the desert for 40 years. And and in Moses' mind is, I'm not doing that again. (laughs) I know I ain't going in, but I ain't going back to that desert. And so there is probably a personal aspect to this. He, he anguished of leading that nation and watching them reject God's promises. Watching them in deny this inheritance that was right there for them. I think you and I can probably get our minds around this a little bit if we have loved ones who reject the gospel. I mean, you know, some people go, well, they just didn't believe in Jesus. Not, not a true believer. A true believer is um, gripped By the sorrow that comes with that. Do you understand, son, daughter, friend, what that means? To us, we understand the truth. We know that's a complete rejection of the only hope for eternal life. Condemnation and judgment for eternity awaits the severity of that. And so put that into context here. They are coming into what What he has said, this is my covenant land that I'm giving to you. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a heaven-like situation. It is a precursor to heaven, and you're going to reject me. And so you can see why the hairs on the back of Moses' neck were standing. Those same feelings must have flooded into this man of God after 40 years wandering and he believed that if they back side this time, it could be full destruction. Of them. Notice in verse 15 at the end, he says, and you will destroy all of these people. Not just the 20 and above. Moses realizes if you, this is what he believes, in, and it's inspired, right? This is, and just think about this. Why is this event in here? Out of all the events that happened, why is this one recorded? There must be some major spiritual significance to this passage. And he says, Moses, what Moses is saying, if you reject him this time, everyone's dying. It won't be just the elderly. Moses' reaction to the potential sinful rejection of God is worth noting here. I, I think there's a there's a sensitivity, think about this there's a sensitivity to national sin and personal sin here. Moses is extremely sensitive to the nation rejecting God, and individuals rejecting God. Anyway, it begs the question is how sensitive are we, you and I and our church, to sin against God? I I think that's what happens to churches in this. It's probably happened through the centuries, right? But we see ourselves being desensitized to sin, which God hates See, that's that danger. That's why we we have to be discipled. We have to keep growing. We have to keep knowing God. We have to keep trying to grasp His holiness and understand Him because what happens when we don't, we become insensitive to Him. Can you imagine how insensitive it is to God to say, oh, marriage isn't what you say it is, God. We reject you on your view of marriage. I mean, it's absolutely, completely, sinfully insensitive to an almighty, holy God, isn't it? So now now you're trying to see, I think, why Moses is wound up here. Because when you read this cursory read through it, you go, okay, Moses, maybe you're just overacting a touch here. Oh, no. He's seen this game before. And he watched those people drop dead day after day after day. And so he takes this very sensitive. I think sometimes Christians can go maybe swing the pendulum a little bit, right? I've told people, you ain't Moses. Get that rod out of your hand when you teenagers going out to, on Friday night. <laughs> and yet at the same time, there is a role that we have as moms and dads and grandparents as we try to care for our, our young ones in our family that, that listen, son, daughter, Friend, there is a wilderness out there, and it's going to chew you up and kill you. You need to be careful. These are good reminders. And most likely, if you react to your family in such severity of the response, it'll be a fruitless relationship. But at the same time, it's teaching, beginning when they're young, continuing teach as they grow continuing to learn the holiness of God and I keep coming back to that because it's in the holiness of God that we understand his wrath and justice don't we and he is a loving God equally loving as he is just and holy and all of that makes up who our God is but when we come against his holiness you go I know why he hates my sin and so there's a seriousness to that now however in this there was opportunity we we see opportunity within a fallen world to have a wrong view of how things happen where we there's areas to fall short to compromise and and not stand firm and 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 that causes problems, right? It causes problems in churches and families and marriages and so forth when we try to compromise on truth. And, and I, as I read this and studied this this week, I thought, Lord, we can't compromise, but yet we've got to teach the truth in love. Will you help us with that balance? I remember Sunday we talked about do everything in love. That was the last of the imperatives in First Corinthians 16 that we looked at. But on a a side note, too, as I I thought about this, I think this is key, is is it possible that Reuben and Gad and later this half-tribe of Manasseh that comes in a little later in the chapter, could they be coveting this land and Moses knew it? Could they be seriously exhausted from the 40 years and all that went on, but were unwilling to go all the way to what God had for them? Could that be what Moses was picking up when they saw the land of Jazzer and the land of Gilead and Bashan and all of that? Was there now room for sin in their heart for materialism, materialism, causing them, and and, and maybe that's what materialism does, causes you to lose interest in the things of God? See, the things of God were across that river. That's, that's the promised land. That's where I want you to go. So could there be that? See, I, I, I just thought first when I began to read this, study this, because I'm always kind of reading ahead, thinking about this as I get ready to study it. I thought, well, this is just an reac- overreaction by Moses. And I've come to think I don't think so. I think he knew these people. I think he knew that they had a tendency to, They had a tendency to fall short of what God wanted them to do. And they've shown that ever since the land of Egypt. This is not new, right? Lot, he's with Abraham. Abraham graciously says, hey, which part of the land do you want to go in? Our cattle are getting too big. We have too much livestock. You know, we need to separate. Um, Which way do you want to go? Lot goes, oh, yeah. Jordan's way better. I'm taking that. And what happened there? That turned out really great. You got a wife who's a salt lick and two daughters that create incest with you. I mean, that goes really well, right? See, that's where, see man has this propensity to try to embetter himself without studying what God would want him to do. And we see that in Lot. In Genesis 49, Jacob, as he's handing out Really, the prophecies of the sons, he gets to Reuben, and he says, you will be uncontrollable as water and have no preeminence. So you're, you're unstable and not excelling. That he, that's what he spoke about the tribe of Reuben. He spoke to his son, but he's the seed of uh, the rest of that tribe that's going to come. He speaks of them. Remember, they are only 70 strong at this point as they come into the land of Egypt. And so here's these guys who are unstable like water, uncontrollable like water, and saying, "Hey, uh, we just want to stay over here." See, Moses knows this, and he knows the potential for error. See, this makes the challenge from Moses all the more stronger in fifteen. If you blow this, you all die. (laughs) It's strong. See, the truth of the situation makes the way all the way even to Jesus' day. He says in Mark chapter eight, verse 37, thirty-six says, "For what it, what does it profit a man if he gains a whole world but forfeits his soul?" Right? That, that's what happens. Build bigger barns. Build build bigger investments. Get more here. Tonight, your soul is required of you. Who gets your stuff? See. This is a problem, and, and as you begin to look at this and you think about the nation of Israel and you think about the problems that they had previously, no wonder Moses is on top of this. And there's so many lessons to learn here. I think Moses' faith in the Lord and the wisdom he had learned through his own obedience and his own disobedience has heightened his awareness here. He's got his antennas up. They're right there. They're almost there. And now you guys are telling me you're not going across with us? That ain't happening in Moses' mind. Well, number two, there was a response here, a response to legitimate accusations with a correct response. And I think this is important to understand this. Verse 16 through 19, look with me at this. And then they came, this is the leaders from Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh. Then they came near and said, We will build here sheep. Folds for our livestock and city for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them into their place, while our little ones live in fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. For we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan towards the east. Now, I I like this. There's a portion of this I really like. I I like their response. And sometimes when you request something, it's not always received the way you requested it. That ever happened in a marriage that you're involved in? (laughs) <laughs> uh, we don't quite always understand our tones, we don't understand sensitivity to things sometimes, or we are insensitive to something and we may say something, or we're not thinking about our own hearts when we go after something. And sometimes that causes people and, uh, to jump to conclusions and without hearing the rest of the information here. And I, and I think it's noted, noted here that the Gadites and the Reubenites, particularly them, they, they seem to move closer to Moses and Eliezer. Now, notice in verse 16, then they came near to him. So, so that tells you there's, they're, they, they're learning here. Wait a minute, hold on. We, 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 need to, we need to make this a little more intimate. And so they move in close, and instead of rebelling against the accusations, it seems these leaders believe that their intentions are correct. They, they, they may not be perfect in their heart, but they think it is. And they don't leave the conversation. I like that. They stay in the conversation. And they make sure that Moses understands that they have no intention of neglecting their responsibilities to the rest of the tribes. And they themselves, according to verse 17, will arm themselves and they will be ready immediately whenever you need us for action. That's a good response. As Israel's history unfolds, it's clear that these two and a half tribes um, are known for their livestock uh, and so, here you begin to see, again, in this set of verses 16 through 19, here, here's the issue. We have all these families. We're large tribes. Uh, we have a large uh, group of livestock that we've gained through through these wars and, and what we've taken care of, uh, made out of the desert with. Um, uh, but, but we want make to make sure they're secure, but we will go to battle. And I think... I think there is some good things here when I look at this. There, There is the nation that seems to re, be repenting of what happened with the Midianites and the Moabites. I mean, remember, they got involved with some wicked, wicked things, plagues hit, um, immorality right in front of them, people being pierced by spears. I mean, remember all that, right? And... and and there's, they, they seem to be sensitive, and they seem to be moving forward. And, and for the most part, I think there's some godly character here seen as well in this generation. In fact, when you study it, one of the things I'm, I like going from here forward is because from about here forward, we see, for the most part, a nation who obeys God all the way through the death of Joshua and the elders. And it's pretty exciting. I mean, there's a, still a couple of stumbles, right? You have Achan at... And then, you know, he hides stuff, and, and then they get lo- they lose to a little town like Ai and things like that. There's a few stumbles along the way, but for the most part, they are very sensitive. In fact, you remember, after it's all done, people are settled in their lands, and these guys come back to go on the east side of the river. They set up a stone there to, to pay tribute to God of all what he's done. The other tribes think they're, they're setting up some kind of worship, and they run over there and say, okay, you're going to die now. And they, whoa, 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 oh, no, we were just thanking God. So they're super sensitive at this point in their life. And I really like this stretch of Israel. In fact, we'll never see it again. Because <laughs> what follows Joshua? Yeah, there we go. Next generation. So it is kind of a fascinating area. Now. Archaeological studies have been in this area, and they haven't ever really identified large cities. And he talks about fortified cities in here. And, and, and I read several people on this, and, and there was two main thoughts that came out of there. One, they never found them because they never found the correct sites. <laughs> That's very possible. Um, but two, these probably were tribes who lived in rural areas. It's one thing to come back, you know, thousands of years later and dig up, you know, Daytona Beach... It's another thing to go find Barberville. Just a big difference, right? A gas station and a weird place with lots of statues, you know, <laughs> out there. Um, and I think that's probably me thinking rule-wise and living most of my life in the rural areas. There's just not a lot out there, right? We were an hour to uh, uh, any kind of a grocery store, just pure, an hour, one hour drive to go get milk. I mean, so there's just not a lot out there. So I think that's probably one of the reasons. So he talks about fortified cities. And so I think anything was fortified after you lived in a tent for 40 years. So um, And remember, they had just beat these nations and burned their cities, the Bible said. So they they probably reformed some of the rock buildings and made some kind of security for their wives and children because, remember, they're leaving them there and they're going to go to war. But there's some interesting words here. Notice here um, the word ready to go. We're, we are ready to go in verse 17. The Hebrew word kush is the word there. It means um, we are ready in a hurry. We are hastened. It's often translated hasten in the old English. We're hastened. We're ready to go. We're ready to go any time, Moses. We want you to know we will be armed and ready to go. And so in other words, these leaders were telling Moses and Eliezer and the other leaders that we can be ready as soon as you need us. We will not leave until the job is complete. And on top of all of that, we, we we, won't take any of this land that's inside the borders. We will, and, and this is what they're saying, we'll forfeit our inheritance in there, and we will make our inheritance on the east side here, which will leave a lot more room for the tribes, is what they're trying to say in justification of that. Now, you remember that um, Gad and Reuben were two of the tribes that were often up front. If Remember when we had, uh, I, I put up a, a screen one time, a, a slide, and it showed how they're stationed and how they moved. Reuben and Gad are out front. So that tells you, when they say, look, we're going to war, they're going to go out front, we're going to be there. And you'll see as we go through Joshua, you'll see these guys are often out front, right in the brunt of the attacks often. So they were committed to that. Now, number three, Sin will expose when your word is not kept. Sin will be exposed when your word is not kept. Let me just read the first couple of them. This gets long in here, and and you can read some of this on your own. But let's look at verse 20 and a few verses after it. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourself before the Lord for war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterwards you shall return and be free of obligation towards the Lord and towards Israel, and this land will be yours for the possession before the Lord. Now, there's some real important things and kind of imperative statements that are made in that. Moses seems to be satisfied with their response. He came at them pretty hard. He says, what you're telling me sounds like what happened at Kadesh Bardia. That's, that's quite a statement. They didn't overreact. They responded back to him. And so Moses seems to be satisfied with the response. And then he says things like this. If you will arm yourself. Now, I mean, war means death, right? You're either killing somebody or you're going to be killed. So this is quite a statement. You're going to trust God in such a way that you're going to put yourself in harm's way, is that what you're saying to me? In a way, he's, he's making a contract with them, isn't he? And, and you can kind of look down the, through this. He keeps saying before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord, driving out his enemy. There's kind of a contract here, that, a verbal contract that he's kind of making with them. And notice he says the word all, all of your men. You're going to have a temptation to leave some back. So that means that you're going to go to war. You're going to have to trust God with your women that are left back here. And they're on the other side of the river where there's not the protection that we're going to have on this side. Because we're going through and we're going to stomp cities along the way. And we're going to be able to protect our people. So all your men are going to come and you're going to trust the Lord. I think what he's doing is he's pushing them. Do you trust the Lord or is this a rebellion? Notice he also says before the Lord, I think four times in there. You can count it four times, I think. This is all done before the Lord. So I think he's putting them on on witness now that what you're saying is now before the Lord. You're going to do this for the Lord. You're going to do this before the Lord. The Lord's eyes are on it. So remember, He's watching because that's such a good reminder because we can get into our daily routines and trying to, you know, build our own little kingdoms here and forget that God's watching and God's a part of all this, don't we? That's where we find ourselves so sideways. And notice in 21, towards the end there, he says, until he, God, notice this, has driven his enemies out from before him. Are you going to go with us and are you going to trust that God is going to do all this? See, everything is based now on faith. Are you going to live by faith or are you going to live by sight? That's what he's doing here. And he's trying to make sure that this tribes, these two and a half tribes, are men of faith. The land must be subdued, notice that, must be won. And then after, and this is that contractual uh, idea here, almost a contract with him. When your obligation, notice those terms, are fulfilled, to the Lord first, and then to your brethren, to your fellow tribesmen. Here, you're going to accomplish that first. And I think what Moses say, in other words, if if it's all done that way, then the land is yours. Do you agree? He's putting them on contract, isn't he? Because he does not want to repeat what happened in chapter thirteen. Now, notice verse 23. Here's a verse you all know, you've heard many times. But if you will not do so. (laughs) You've heard the contraction, the contractual part here in 20 with 22. But now here is if you fail, if you break it. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Not against me, but you've sinned against the Lord who's watching over, who's before you that sees all these things. And be sure your sins will find you out. Just like it did to your daddies, who rejected him in the in Caesarea. Now that, I think that's a quite a fascinating statement. Now you and I've all heard this verse quoted by your mom, your grandmother, your Sunday school teacher. Uh, I remember this walking out the door on Friday nights, uh, son. You know, your sins will find you out. Like, thanks, mom. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that really set a great tone for the date, you know, because <laughs> you're maybe thinking something different. But there is a context here, right? The context is not so much your behavior, but your word, which affects your behavior, doesn't it? Are you going to sit down and keep your word? You didn't keep it before. You stood there at Mount Sinai and you said all that God has commanded, we will do. We will trust him. We will go and take this land. You came up against it and you said, no, we're not. That's with the context of this great verse. Your sins will find you out. Notice in verse 24, build yourself cities for your little ones, your sheep folds for your sheep, and do what you have promised. Do what you have promised. In a way, Moses is repeating their promise and then challenging them to keep their word. Do what you promise. Do not fail God fulfill that. Remember just a little, couple of weeks ago we were doing the vows that were given? Same idea. You are vowing to go across the Jordan with us, take care of war till that everybody gets their inheritance and not only till, till that is not done, till that is fully done, then you'll come back, keep a promise. This is stiff. I mean this, and this isn't just like you know I'll finish the job. This is war. This is people who hate you and want to kill you because they know you just wiped out their neighbors, men, women, and children, and everything else, and burned their city to the ground. There's a lot of people not happy with you. So this isn't just, oh, yeah, 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 I'll get it it done, I'll get it done, quit harping on me. This is grab your spear, grab your sword, grab your shield. We're going to battle. Keep your promise. Look at verse 25 through 27. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do just as the Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. While your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over into the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord, he's speaking of Moses, says. So here the leaders of the tribes confirm that promise. Um, we are going to do this. We're giving you our word. Verses twenty eight through thirty. So Moses gave commands concerning them to Eliezer the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun. That's very important. These are the really ruling factors of the nation. Moses is gonna die, the, the baton's being handed off to Joshua. Eliezer is the one who represents them before God. He is the high priest. Joshua is their leader and to the heads of the fathers of the household of the tribes of the sons of Israel. So Moses commands them. Moses said to him, verse 29, if the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle will cross over with you over the Jordan into the presence of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Not to go to Jericho, not to do all that. Cross over in the presence of the Lord because the Lord's watching this. And the land is subdued before you then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession And isn't it interesting that he's talking about this because he's not going to be there. He's going to die on Nebo. And so now he's commanding um, Eliezer, the leaders of Israel, particularly Joshua. If this all happens, just like they say, if they keep their word, give them the land. Verse 30, but if they will not cross over with you armed, they shall have possession among the lands of Canaan. Now there's the change in it. If they decide that, hey, we can't hold up to that end of the contract, they don't get that land, they come over with us. You can see how that is laid out. And so Moses makes this clear. He wants this recorded. He wants them to keep their word and um, do it. And, you know, as you study on into the book of Joshua, you'll see these guys spearheading the campaign many times, Reuben and Gad out front. Uh, taking on some of the greatest adversaries. Uh, Joshua 22 is a great uh, uh, section to read on that. Verse 31 and 32. The sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servant, so we will do. Moses has heard that before. We ourselves will cross over, armed in the presence of the Lord, in the land of Canaan, and the possessions of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan. So the leaders of Gad and Reuben are ratifying their end of the contract. Here's our vow. We're going to ratify this. This is what we're going to do. Now, verses 32 through 42, there's uh, lots of cities and people and uh, things that are going to go on here. And let me just kind of generalize this a little bit as we finish this out. Um, here, when we get into verse 33, is where we find the, the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's the first time they're mentioned. Um, can we put that slide back up? Shelby is able to get to that. you'll see here's one half of manasseh that will be inside the original promised land that's given there and then oh this thing just quits on me um, and then of course you see up the north northeast corner there um, the this is the this is what they're requesting right there some of the most choicest land in that area if you've ever been over there I have not but I've seen many pictures I I've been in Egypt and below that but um but if you've ever been there, it's still a place. Uh, I was reading one commentary of a man who wrote it in 1920, and he gave a first eye witness. He actually walked most of that, and he said, still to this day, the hills roll with lush green cattle and livestock grazing, all uh, just uh, lush and pasture land still in that area, very coveted land uh, for many people in there, and now irrigated and farmed in many ways. Um, so doubtlessly, these, this tribe of Manasseh is uh, uh, joined this group, and and, there's, and we'll get into this in chapter 36. I just want to make a quick note here. Remember uh, Zel- Zelophad, Zelophad. Remember his daughters. We'll see in chapter 36 that it's probably one of the reasons why they, the half tribe of Manasseh, because their their daughters of Zelophad is a Manassanite. And their daughters, and there's probably concerns that those daughters are going to get land across, that land across that river. And so they join with the other two drives. Hey, we'll stay on this side, and we'll see in chapter 36 where those lands are allocated to those daughters. He starts to put it together a little bit. I know that's deep history and kind of maybe more than... I'm a history guy, so I like that kind of stuff uh, to see how all of the scriptures start fitting together. So it's clear that verses 39 through 42, if you just glance at those quickly, there were certain clans of Manasseh. These, these were uh, different men. You'll see their names there who uh, uh, conquered territories. Um, if you look in there, they're, they're in this area. This is all hill country. Um, and it, uh, I don't know why this thing quits on me but, um, so we're, all, we're about where that line is it was all hill country then it flows down into the, the pastures of Bashan and then flows back down towards Gad into pastures but that's all hill country now the same was true remember when Caleb later in Joshua goes to Caleb uh, you see him right below Judah there you see his name there um, he said the same thing. Hey, I was promised land because I did not believe with the rest of the ten spies and the nation. And I want my land. And he did the same thing. So just like those guys go in and crush the guys in those hill countries, so Caleb does the same thing down in that area. And he actually goes probably to descendants of Goliath, uh, pre predescendants of Goliath, and goes and gets them. Now, last thought here. I um, just have a few minutes left. I, I want to more move to a, a thought of application here because as I studied this I began to really concentrate on verses 16 through 15 because I wanted to know why Moses is so wound up they seem like they're compliant they seem like no 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 you just got it all wrong Moses we're going to go do all these things and and why God would see fit of all the things that happened over these 40 years and all the things going up why this story so it made me start to think and I wrote this this thought here number four we are prone to wander prone to leave the God we love of course I took that from that great hymn by Robin Robinson now I believe it's a valid challenge by Moses after studying this that he knew the tendencies of this nation and and it wasn't the first time that they've proved that they were less than capable of keeping their promises right they have done this on many occasions. And in fact, the Bible says these 10 times God said, you've rebelled against me. So this is who they are. So that's that's one of the reasons Moses is so sharp with them in 6 through 15. And I think that's why in verse 21, 20 and 21, he has such a direct statement about this. If you don't do this, you're all going to die. This is how serious this is. So... I think from applications think, we start to realize wandering from the faith is often revealed by the fact that we will compromise. So if you want to not wander away from the faith, you don't want to wander away from our God who loves us, whom we seem to try to wander from, The the way you recognize that is through where you compromise. I want you to think about that for a little bit. Where are times, think about times, that you were not where you should have been in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And if you go back and think through this, you will find compromise after compromise that you let into your life. See, that's what makes us prone to wander. We don't believe, we say we do, we academically do but we don't believe in our mind and heart. And once I stop believing there, then I allow compromises to happen. I justify sinful things, and then I fight and stand for those things, and I find myself drifting away from the Word, away from my Lord and Savior. And this is, I think, what Moses was concerned about. The book of Numbers itself just shows a very a nation that's very determined to go their way. They're very determined to do things their way. They have to be bit by snakes, die with meat in their teeth. They're determined to leave the God they say they love. And I think Moses would agree with us if he was here. He said this is innate to to man. We, We know that what our God requires of us, and yet we struggle with it. I want you to think about that map again, and you could put that back up, Shelby, if you like. One of the things that's in that upper division up there is the town of Ashtaroth. Guess what was there? Baal. The worship of Astroth. The worship of high places. Fornication and immorality that all came with that. That's, that's, that was the hub of that. Remember that, that um, uh, the king of Moab takes Balaam, Right? And he brings him to there, and they're standing by an idol of Baal as they look down at this nation. This was in this place, and so they had such a difficult time with these things. The psalmist rehearsing the history of Israel, chapter uh, 106, is such a great chapter. If you want to just go back and remind yourself a quick read of the nation of Israel, it's an amazing Accurate portrayal of them I'll drop into it in verse 34 They did not destroy the peoples That's one of the problems we'll see They didn't take out everybody like they were supposed to As the Lord commanded them But they mingled with the nations And learned their practices Remember we talked about compromise We are in this world But we are not Oh brothers and sisters There's a soul There's a war going on for your soul We got a job to do Here on this earth that's to be light in a dark world. But we're not of it. And this is what happened. They mingled with the nations. And it's just something I ask people all the time. They're going through struggle. How are you mingling with the nations? Have you mingled? I was, oh, Scott, you know, I've got to work. Yeah, you've got to go to work. God actually has a mission field for you. He sent you to that job. But are you compromising? The Bible goes on to say they served their idols, which became a snare to them. I know there's nobody in this room who would bow down be- or some stone, but you might bow down to finances. You might bow down to immorality. You might bow down to your pride. Verse 37 says, they even sacrificed their own sons and their daughters to demons. You go, oh, we would never do that. Really? Did you compromise the role of husbands and wives and dads and mothers? I mean, think about that. This is how we get here. So it's so easy to look at Israel and just go, those guys, man, God did everything for them. And look at them. Boy, flip that Bible around. (laughs) Right? It's a mirror. And we begin to look at it. They shed innocent blood, blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. See, I think Moses knows this. And he warns them, and even in Deuteronomy, we'll see, I counted at least six times in Deuteronomy that he warns them exactly of this stuff. If you give into this, if you compromise, God will deliver you over to judgment. He warns them of it in his last days. Now, how does this happen? How how do we get here? How do we wander away from the Lord? Well, maybe it's a lack of enthusiasm for what God wants us to do that be where it starts? I'm just not enthused with what you have for me, God. I'm not enthused about the spouse you chose for me. I'm not enthused about this job you gave me. I'm certainly not enthused about my financial state. See, I think that's where it happens. We're not excited about what God's doing. In fact, so often, as I said Sunday, we get caught up in the things of the world and we have no idea what God's doing we support missionaries in the Philippines? I didn't know that. I've been talking to this since the day I arrived here, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's frightening some of the comments that come back after you preach and you go, maybe it is true. Only 10% of the people only hear 10% of the sermon. <laughs> See, we're indifferent. We're indifferent to God's goals. And compromise is always knocking at the door. I remember our boys, as they got to where they were beginning to venture outside the house, I would say two things to them every time they left. Love Christ, don't compromise. And they go, yeah, Dad, we heard you. Son, what is it? Love Christ, don't compromise. It was just something I just told them in love. don't Love Christ, don't compromise, boys. It was something we repeated in our house because we knew that was, we knew, Gina and I knew the pressure on young people. And it's not getting any easier. And so, some good questions to think about. Am I enthusiastic to pursue the promises of God? Right? Am I, am I excited about what God's doing? Or have I compromised and have my compromises robbed my enthusiasm for what God's doing? Maybe you look around and you find other Christians who are excited about the things of Christ and you're not. So it's time to go and say, why? Why? Why why is that true of me? I have the same spirit of God. Jesus Christ died for me. I'm equal in the standing. There's no greater or lesser within the kingdom. We're we're all God's children. He's made us his children through the death, burial, and resurrection, through this atonement. Um, Equality in all that we've done. Different roles, of course, that we have, but equality. Why am I not excited about Jesus and his word? Why don't I love his people very much? See, I, I was thinking about that all week. You know, I've been, you've been hearing me. Love Christ, love his word, love his people. I find combinations of in this, all my own life, and I find this combination is a lot of believers. There's people who love people. They're just people, people, man. They're just like, hey, yeah, they're all over you. Yeah, get off me, you know. <laughs> then there's the Jesus people, man. They've created their own Jesus. They make Jesus out to be what he want Him to be. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Then you've got the word people, man. Word, man, word, you know, there's just hard trait. And, and, and somehow we can get two out of three and then it doesn't work, right? But do we all? And, and let me ask you this question, and I thought about this long today as I was finishing the sermon. I thought, Lord, where is my weakness? Is it love of Jesus, love of the word, love of people? Where's yours? Which one is the link that is the weakest? Because that's what God calls us to do. That's what th- that, I mean, I just, those three things that God just laid on my heart many, many years ago, and I thought that's really a combination of the word of God in a lot of ways. Where am I weak? Do I love Christ, the Christ of the Bible? Do I love his word and search it and apply it and hide it in my heart? And do I love his people or do I not want to be involved with them? See, these are good questions. I think when we don't get there, then compromise starts to come in. We lose our zeal for the things of God. The worldly philosophies start to enter in. We get caught up in world events. They capture us more than the word of God. And the glory of our desires start to trump the glory of Christ in our own hearts and minds. And because of this, we substitute our obedience to Christ and his word with things the world loves. And carry little eternal valley. And I think the broad road is still out there and it's still on the other side of salvation at times and you and I can get on it. And it's deadly. I don't know if you've ever driven into Las Vegas. We lived in the West for most of our lives and (laughs) the closer you get to Las Vegas, the signs just get bigger and brighter. Like, man, we're driving into hell and it looks great. (laughs) I mean, I think that's what happens, right? Christians get on this road. Hey, the land looks fertile. Man, there's great things there. We can build houses. Our kids will be great. Oh, oh, I can do all this. And never ask God, do you want me to be here? One dear pastor told me during COVID, he said, 27 my core families left our church and never told the elders and moved to Idaho. Never bothered to pick up the phone and say, hey, we're moving to Idaho. Now, I know it's California and everybody wants out of there, but <laughs> praise the Lord, some of us got out <laughs> by the will of God. <laughs> but think about that. Do you think you would move your entire family without seeking counsel? See, this is where we have to be careful here. And I'm not saying those people were not in the will of God, but it just, that's bothersome, Right? Spurgeon, you've heard me say this quote many times. The only heaven the lost will ever experience is what they can gain on this earth. And the only hell the saved will experience is what they go through on this earth. But we'll go through hell to be right with God, won't we? That's when your soul's gripped. So what are you trying to control? What do you need to let go? Thought of a couple of verses. James chapter 1, verse 8. Being a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. I want to be in the world, and I want to be in the church. I want to love the things of my pleasure, and I want to be a Jesus guy. This just doesn't work. James goes on to say, you want to be a friend of the world? You're an enemy of me. I mean, that's what God says. Luke chapter 13, verse 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You will lose joy serving two masters. And I think Moses knew that. And he saw what happened. Be sure your sins will find you out. You give lip service to God and compromise in your life, your sins will find you out. Thank the Lord we have a gracious God. There's a world out there, it looks very fertile, bright and shiny. It's deadly. Go into the land. Obey God. Keep a fervor in your life for the promises of God. Lord, thank you for this time and this word. This is a passage I never saw this before, Lord. I thank you for showing us truth through your word, Lord. May we apply these truths to our lives. Live them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.